Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 54th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the unknown science of longevity, success, and trust. I'm joined by John Levy. He is the author of You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. The publisher is HarperCollins. John is a behavioral scientist who over a decade ago founded the Influencers Dinner, a secret dining experience for industry leaders. John has also served as consultant on influence and decision-making for companies looking to transform how they do business. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me on. Are you Absolutely. Kidding? Any excuse to talk science and have some fun, I am there. Perfect. So um, give us a little bit of an overview of the book, if you don't mind. Oh, for sure. So uh, 12 years ago, I started these dinners. And at the time, I was uh, 28. I was severely in debt. I was, uh, you know, I didn't really have a great career uh, on the horizon. And um, I was frankly pretty chubby too. And I would really beat myself up for not, let's say, waking up at 6 a.m. and exercising every day. I didn't have the habits I wanted. I didn't have the career trajectory. And I came across a study by uh, Christakis and Fowler about the obesity epidemic. And they found something startling, that you have a, if you have a friend who's obese, your probability increases by 45%. Your friends, uh, sorry, their friends have a 20% increased chance, and their friends have a 5% increased chance. So meaning that each of us have an effect three degrees out, right? Your friend's friends are affected by somebody that you know who's overweight. And it turns out to be true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. So I got obsessed with this idea of maybe what I need to do is surround myself with extraordinary people I admired. And then they would have a positive impact on me. And if I could introduce them to each other, they would have an impact on one another. And so what I started looking at was how do people connect? How do they build trust in a meaningful way? And then how do we really give people a sense of belonging? Uh, because the fact of the matter is that it seems that that's something that we all search for, yearn for at some base level. And the book is really about that. It's what are the science of these things? And then I share kind of completely wild stories from the the uh, craziest art heist in history to uh, the origins of the abolitionist movement and Weight Watchers. You know, it's it's a fascinating book, and I want to go into those examples, but I'm going to go back to the dinner just for a moment to start. So if I understand right, these celebrities who don't share their names initially mm -hmm. uh, help make the dinner. Uh, presumably, they help do the dishes afterwards. Oh, yeah. I, I joke around and I say, uh, I invite people to my home to cook me dinner, wash my dishes, clean my floors, and oddly, when they're done, they thank me for it. <laughs> so, so I've got to ask you if there's any 
basically horror stories. And I say that for two reasons. One is many, many, many years ago, I went on a two-week camping trip, uh, canoeing trip in the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And by the time the trip was done, I only liked two of the guys because over the course of two weeks, you learn a lot about... Oh, uh, everybody you know, got on each other's nerves. Yeah. Exactly. And I can also remember going uh, non-glamp cam- camping in Botswana. And I, I love the other people, but there was one person who was not so charitable about joining in with uh, washing the dishes, for instance. So any instances where, you know, maybe it wasn't disclosed, you didn't shame the person, certainly, but somebody who came maybe didn't quite live up to snuff in terms of uh, joining in the spirit of the occasion. You know, it's, I don't think we've ever had that happen. That's and, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think the reason is that the invitation is so strange that everybody who's walking in knows what's going to happen. And if it didn't appeal to you, you're not going to go out of your way, right? Like, here's a simple example. If I invited you to a basketball camp to play basketball with celebrities, uh, with professional athletes for a week, if you hate basketball, that's not the place for you to go. True. I just thought that maybe some people don't handle stress as well as others and oh. someone might have come off a bad hair day and they just, you know, didn't quite manage to get in the spirit of things. But I guess I guess it's been a good streak. It has. And I think for a few reasons. The first is that the experience itself is kind of playful. So even if you've had a long day, we give people about 25 minutes when they enter to kind of like let it go, have a drink, take a breather. They can either hang out with a group. They can walk around the apartment. And so it gives you like a, a bit of transition time. It's not like today on Zoom where people go from 30-minute meeting to 30-minute meeting and they're back to back to back. And the other is that I ask people if they have any specific rules, like, are you vegan? Okay, you're not going to be touching any meat then. Are you, do you have no idea how to cook? Great. You can make cocktails for people or help sure. make dessert. And so we really try to be accommodating when... Uh, was it Joshua Bell, the famed violinist came? He's like, listen, I can't risk handling knives. He said, great. That's not a problem at all. If you want, you make the brownies. There is literally no way you can cut yourself aside from maybe a paper cut on the box. So go for it. Uh, Okay. And so in the spirit of things, it, it ends up not being like, we just try to be as accommodating as possible. And people tend to have really good spirits about it, especially because they're not paying for it. Right. Like yeah. it's, I'm covering all the expenses. OK, so the, the subtitle mentions cultivating influence. And I'm struck by how much influence seems to be almost the word of the day. I say that in part because I recently had a guest uh, who's at Salesforce and he mentioned to me almost in passing that among young people in some survey to grow up and become an influencer is their number one goal <laughs> yes. in life. Um, and yet at the same at the same time, I, I said to myself, huh, I wonder when. Uh, Robert Cialdini wrote, you know, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. Turns out it's all the way back in 1984. So can you stitch together for me from your sense of things, how influence and influencer and all of this kind of bubbled up and became so prevalent? So when I started this influencer's dinner, nobody was using the word influence besides Cialdini, right? I meant it as somebody who can have an impact on an industry, either through their thought leadership, position, previous success, things like that. Now, when Instagram became popular, companies started noticing that if somebody posted something, it would influence buying behavior, 
And so they started, I believe, calling people influencers if their large following would buy things. Now I want to separate something really important. What most people refer to as an influencer, like a person who posts content on Instagram or TikTok, those people are generally content creators that have a micromedia outlet, right? They have the ability to produce yeah. content, just like Elle magazine has an outlet or, you know, Oprah magazine or whatever it is. And they produce content for that outlet consistent with the brand. So do these people. So although they might have some level of influence, I actually consider them at media outlets. The kind of influence I really care about is the kind of stuff that's important for us for our lives. So Dan, if you have a child and you wanted to get your child into an ideal college, right? How can you have an effect on the outcome? Or if you wanted to get a raise or for a customer to trust you more, all of these things seem to depend on three factors, which is who we're connected to, how much they trust us, and the sense of belonging that we share, right? Because if you're not connected to somebody, you can't really influence them in a meaningful way. And if they don't trust you, they're definitely just not going to listen to you. So I think that what happened was that every so often we pick a word in, in our culture and we get obsessed with it. It used to be like innovative uh, and now it's influential and next it's probably going to be creative or something like that. But that's not the kind of influence that I tend to talk about. Okay. No, I, I like the distinction. I, I do remember truthiness when uh, Colbert came up with that. Yes, that was great. Yeah, I think I think that's a good word. And it um, made it into to Merriam-Webster's dictionary. It, it did, in fact, and, and well-deserved, in my opinion. So I do take the deeper meaning of what you're after here. And I guess I, I have a question because I see no reason why they – uh, you know, listeners shouldn't know you even better than what you offered up kind of in describing the book and what's what triggered writing it, which is the, the values and traits that you, in fact, admire. Uh, maybe, you know, as you began your journey where you're at now, because I'm sure you've, you know, transformed yourselves in some ways. But, you know, when I look through the, the bio materials you sent me, you mentioned, for instance, as part of your adventure book, the 2 a.m. book going off to Art Basel, to Burning Man. You know, those are pretty different events in some ways, but there's yeah. probably some underlying continuity that uh, you're about to disclose to us all. And I'm wondering how those adventures and these dinners and the journey you've been on has led you to whoever you are and the values and traits that uh, really are foremost for you. Oh, that's a fun question. Uh, so, yeah, my first book was about the science of adventure. It's called The 2 a.m. Principle. And in it, I'd say the biggest takeaway is that our life, the size of our life, is in proportion to how uncomfortable we're willing to be. And the reason I say that is that adventure is about doing something that's remarkable and exciting. It's worth talking about. It is something that makes us uncomfortable to some degree because we have to grow from it. And it has to leave us changed. And the reason that those things are important is that if we don't grow from the experience, it's probably not remarkable <laughs> to begin with. But if there's anything that I've really strove for in my life, it's that whatever I do, it would stand out as novel or different. I didn't want to be a copycat of something else. And so at the dinner, I think part of the appeal, and I talk about this in the book, is that it fundamentally has a novel format. And if we want to connect with influential people, we need to stand out for the right reasons. And there's a section of the brain uh, for, your, for you neuroscientists out there uh, you know this, it's called the SNVTA, and it's referred to as the major novelty center. 
And what's interesting about it is that it responds relative to how novel something is and actually entices us to explore and understand it. And so when I hear about things like Pamplona's Running of the Bulls or Burning Man or, you know, Cannes Film Festival, like these remarkable experiences, that novelty center goes crazy and says, John, figure out a way to get there. (laughs) And so, you know, in Pamplona, that led me to actually almost getting killed when I got crushed by a bull. I was hospitalized. And sometimes it ends much better. Like when I uh, traveled to Art Basel and then I, uh, (laughs) I did something ridiculous. I went into the nearby town of Nice. I had no place to sleep. And I made a deal with myself that uh, either I will convince a stranger to put me up for the night or I will sleep on the street. And so for me, I'm willing to be uncomfortable in hopes that the reward is growth and hopefully some friendships along the way. Okay. And kind of building on that, I think we're getting into emotions, which is uh, ostensibly the title of this uh, podcast after all. Uh, you mentioned there's four qualities that make interactions or events more compelling Mm. And uh, you've really been seizing on one of them, which is novelty. But I think awe is going to have some relationship there. So can you talk to me about the power and the importance of awe? Absolutely. So specifically when I'm trying to connect with influential people, since they've experienced it all already, it's not going to be because I invite them to another casino-themed fundraiser. (laughs) Like they've just done it all and that stuff's kind of lame. So I found that, okay, doing something novel will definitely get their attention. That'll be remarkable. But arguably the most desired human emotion or experience is awe. It's this moment where we had previously seen the world one way and now we see it a new way. It's a shift in thinking. Now it can be triggered by an incredible vista. It could be (laughs) triggered by the end of a very clever movie like this in the sixth sense or the usual suspect, or it's been triggered when people hold their child for the first time. And in these moments, first of all, they're unforgettable. They're so rare. The second is that it causes us to feel more generous and more connected. And so I shoot to produce experiences that actually trigger off, not because it's, it's definitely not easy and it's near impossible. But if I can, then I know that the context of our relationship will be much, much stronger. And since I tend not to have a lot of time with influential people, I want to maximize the potential of that experience. Sure. No, I I found that fascinating for for several reasons. One is that awe, uh, if you think of the emotions that go into awe, yes, there's surprise, which fits very nicely with novelty. You know, literally Mm. the eyes go wider, you're taking in new information. But the other motion that blends to create awe is fear, which goes right back to your point that there has to be some degree of getting beyond your comfort zone and having, you know, some vulnerability. And I'm, in fact, about to launch some travel tours called Phases and Places. And my entire goal is to be transformational. I don't want it to be playing tourist. I want it to push people, Mm. uh, but push them also together and deeper inside themselves. What do you think is the play between awe and generosity? Because you then that's another one of the terms. And I, I actually think there could be a connection between the two. But what do you think? How, how does awe that's and generosity so interplay? I, it's interesting that you say that because I've never tried to draw a connection between the two. But let me think through this. So generosity 
is occurs when somebody provides more than is expected. It's just that simple, right? And what we've generally found is that people who are especially, let's say, influential or successful get approached a lot for stuff. That might be, hey, can you get my kid an internship all the way through to, oh, can you invest in my company or give me a loan? And we, when I was approaching people, and at the time I was 28, I had you know, no status, I was beyond in debt from college, like the whole situation <laughs> wasn't sure. great. I, I wanted to f- find a way to connect with th- these high profile people. I realized that in order to get past the defense or concern that I was after something, I needed to be generous. Not generous as like a strategy, oh, now you owe me, but just that this is a great context for a relationship. And when I looked at the research um, Adam Grant had done, this is after I had started my events, uh, he, he shared something really amusing, which is when you compare people who are givers, those that are generous, takers, those that are selfish, and matchers, those that mimic behavior, the least successful tend to be the givers. And the most successful tend to be the givers. And what separates the two groups of givers are the ones that know where to draw the line. So if you can be generous and support people and provide something unique, and in my case, what I try to do is provide a novel, generous experience, right? One that would hopefully trigger awe, then it gives us the best chance for success. It doesn't only feel good, it also increases our general success in life. And I thought that's wonderful. Yeah, no, well, Adam Grant is, is of course, a, a treasure. Um, <laughs> I also know he's the most uh, highly uh, rewarded or, or evaluated professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm not surprised by that. He, here's what I thought was the possible connection between awe and generosity. For me, that fear is so important as, as an element of awe so that I feel like I'm potentially stepping into a situation or facing something that could be bigger than myself and to deal with it and to keep going forward, I've got to find more in myself than I expected was there. Mm. And that then can trip over into finding that you have that extra and you can share some of that. And some of that may grow back in turn and keep growing the pie. So I just thought there was a possibility that the two had had some connection. And and maybe I'm out to lunch on that one, but that, that's how I took it. Um, have, you ever, have you ever heard of Wundt's Curve? I was curious. Who? Wundt's Curve. No, w- I haven't. Okay. He was actually, along with Freud, the co-founder of psychology. Mm. And one of my favorite things is Wundt's Curve, which says that if you're kind of graphing how you bring people in, how you connect, mm-hmm. what you need is you need, there's four elements. There's the familiar and the simple, mm-hmm. and there's the novel and the complex. And to bring them along, you have to have something that makes them get their toe in the water, which is the familiar or the simple. And then you have to have something that pushes them and keeps the stakes sizzling, which is the complexity or the novelty. But you can't overload one side or the other, because if you just take the simple, easy stuff in, you've got applesauce, not mm-hmm. apple pie. And if you just go for complexity and novelty, you, you've overloaded them and given them a migraine. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's the beautiful, what he argued, and I think it's brilliant. I've seen it so often in the advertising that I've admired over the years and all the ones that don't work, on the other hand, is really, Wundt's Curve to me is 
is a wonderful thing. So when you started talking about novelty uh, and but also curation and and trying to give people some sort of baseline. And I guess this is all spinning around to a question or a, a chance to kind of share something from the book. I was really intrigued by how the TED conferences started and oh, how it's they a were crazy story. Eh? Yeah. And how they were playing off some things that were very familiar and they ditched a lot of them. And uh, on the hand, they probably didn't ditch everything. So can you tell the, the, the backstory to the TED conferences and the evolution of the TED conferences? Yeah, it's, it's a, interesting. The person who created it, Richard Saul Mormon, who's kind of become the face of the founding of it, he, I think he had a partner, uh, was really into the Bauhaus movement, which is defined by the simplification of design. Yep. And he said, maybe we could apply Bauhaus to conferences because at the time, this was 19, early 1980s, Conferences were all the same. It was a bunch of people from the same industry who all were old white guys in suits. And so he asked the question, great, what's the essence of a conference and what can we get rid of? So they got rid of the one hour keynotes and they got rid of the lecterns and the uh, the suits and the like piece by piece. He's like, this doesn't help the idea. What does it matter if somebody could be wearing a t-shirt? And once he eliminated everything, what he ended up with was a single idea that could be explained in 10 to 20 minutes. I think it's like nowadays it's nine or 18 minutes. And uh, so he launches this conference and TED actually stands for technology, entertainment, and design, which were kind of three pinnacles. And it was invitation only. And he ends up uh, doing this conference and people loved it. I mean, it was 1984, I think, was the first one, and he demoed the first ebook and the first uh, like Discman, right? Like back when CDs were like just starting, but this was a portable CD player, and so he was able to accomplish a whole slew of things, right? On one aspect, we talked about novelty. The design was completely novel. He would actually stand on stage, uh, or I think maybe even had a chair. And if somebody was talking and they would keep droning, then he would just pull them off stage, just like right there. And his, from what I understand, his belief was either it's going to be so short that if it's bad, you don't remember it because we'll cut it even earlier. Or if it's sure. good, they'll wow you in nine minutes or 20 minutes. And, uh, and it was kind of like a huge hit, but they didn't set up the financials very well. And as a byproduct, it would be a, many years until they, they relaunched it. And eventually it was bought by Chris Anderson. He turned it into a nonprofit and uh, they started posting the videos online. And that's what really made Ted famous. Before that, it was kind of like this niche thing that had a very, I think, str was intimate sense of community that was limited to like a few hundred people. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great story, including the fact that they still had to, you know, get the least the finance part right. The concept <laughs> yeah. was, was cool from the get-go, but uh, sometimes you do need some practicality to go along with the... Uh... The, the novelty factor. So a, a couple of things I want to get to before we run out of time here. Um, we've been faced with an online world. Uh, have you found some guidelines for helping to to master things in the, the hybrid between real world and online world in this past year of COVID? So there's, I think, a couple of things. Uh, one was that when everybody started shifting their events online, we realized that their events were terrible to begin with. Yeah. And uh, so... There's a few things that we want to take into account. 
One is that we don't just show up to events to be entertained and enlightened. It's If it was just the entertainment or the information, then I could find it on YouTube and it would be more enjoyable than seeing a terrible version on WebEx. The fact is that we also want to be able to connect with people. Yep. And we want the ability to feel like we have some influence. When people feel helplessness, it's terrible. And so if I'm on some 800-person WebEx that nobody's paying attention to me or cares about me, I'm going to go wash my dishes. I'm going to start answering emails. And then I'm not really engaged. And so when we look at doing digital events, there's a few things. The first is, can we spend time in breakout rooms, in small intimate groups? Can we meet people? Can you give us a catalyst to actually trigger social interaction, right? People don't do well when you just put them in front of each other to interview one another. What we do well is over an activity like a hike, a puzzle, a game, right? These are the things that actually cause us to to interact. And the reason is something called the IKEA effect, which is that we disproportionately care about our IKEA furniture because we had to assemble it. So when we invest effort into one another, we actually trust each other more and like each other more. And so one aspect is this interaction with other people. And the second is, can you give people a sense of influence? Part of that will be by interacting with each other. But part of it is, can they ask questions? Can you turn their microphones on? Can, they, can you have them fill out uh, poll questions so that they can have an impact or at least be engaged in some way? And that kind of stuff tends to add a lot of value to an experience. It, makes, it takes it from one dimensional to uh, feeling like you can be part of a community. No, I like that a lot. Have you ever had an experience then that you've staged where based on the, the, the polling and the questions, the whole thing in a wonderful way, you know, fishtailed into something you weren't expecting, maybe took a different direction as to the activity versus what you imagined coming in? So there was a few things that I did. Uh, in addition to the dinners, I run a salon series. We usually have about 60 to 100 people. Uh, they come in person and they are provided like cocktails. And then we surprise them with uh, incredible speakers. So it might be Bill Nye, the science guy. It could be one of the roots performing. It could be anything you could imagine. And uh, when COVID hit, we started doing them digitally. And we wanted to figure out ways to make things as playful as possible. And so one thing we did was uh, we had Nia Vardalos from My Big Fat Greek Wedding and Roy Wood Jr. from The Daily Show compete in a game called Greek or Hip Hop where everybody was asked if a quote was either from Greek uh, thinkers or from hip hop lyrics. And they would, everybody <laughs> would use the poll features, but then uh, after the polling took place and people put their answers in, then Nia and, uh, and Roy would kind of compete to see who was right more often. And it was really playful and fun. And you can see that it was novel and well curated and, we have all these things that you might have seen associated with like the way that Richard did Ted, right? It was well curated, it was novel, it was uh, generous, but then we made it really interactive. So people felt like they had influence. And then, yeah, no. oh, sorry. Oh, no, I, I just, I, I agree with you. I, I asked uh, one of my favorite uh, favorite nephew-in-laws, I said, what do you want in an event kind of getting ready for this show? And he said, well, you know, I want it to be experiential. I want it to be interactive and I'd better have a sense of humor. And if I don't mm -hmm. get those three things, I'm probably not so interested. Yeah. I, I feel like 
the old guard of events makes things very checkboxed and unappealing to participate in. And so uh, I think we're going to see an entire generation now that's really community focused because we've been isolated for so long and uh, because of the pandemic. Yeah, no, well, that would be a nice uh, upside to this whole thing that we've suffered through. One last question before we end. I mean, I, I'm sure you're quite familiar and beholden in some ways to behavioral economics. Is there a, a a principle from that that you particularly love? Maybe one of the less obvious ones, you know, beyond uh, peak end rule and, and loss aversion. Is there something that you've maybe demonstrated through uh, your events that you, you particularly have, uh, it's it's tickled people or, or opened their eyes? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if I stumped the chump, sorry about that. I think that there's a funny one, which is I'm very open to screwing things up. And there's this behavioral bias known as the pratfall effect, uh, which is that we actually like people when they screw up. We like people more when they screw up a little around us, right? It's why the characters in rom-coms are always, you know, dropping papers and spilling coffee on themselves. And I, I intentionally allow for the dinners to be imperfect. Huh? I think it expresses the humanity. And I don't even try to make them perfect. I just let them be. And I think that that actually allows people to feel more comfortable. Because if they came into an environment that was so pristine and everything was perfectly aligned and everything was just, you'd be scared to touch a glass because you'd destroy the layout or the pattern. I think it would make them less comfortable. And no, no. That's good. I, I, I like that a lot. I, I know when I give speeches, the first time I ever gave a speech, I actually wrote it out and tried to deliver it. And like, no, I'm not doing that again. So yeah. I uh, I allow for the little imperfections. Hopefully they're not large blemishes, but uh, you know, some moments of genu genuineness come out, hopefully in the fact that it does have a spontaneous quality to it. Anyway, sad as it is, I'm, I'm going to say our time is about up. I want to thank you so much, John, for having been my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, this has been episode number 54, The Unknown Science of Longevity, Success, and Trust. John is the author of You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. I would urge you to go out and get a copy. It will be a nice gift and favor to yourself. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can give it a rating or review on iTunes, of course. You can also find out about other episodes at my company's website. That's the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network and this series appears under their special series programming. Uh, finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram uh, that might be appropriate or inappropriate. This one is a very ambiguous, ironic take on the word influence from Oscar Wilde and from the picture of Dorian Gray, where he writes, to influence a person is to give him one's own soul. He becomes an echo of someone else's music, an actor of a part that has not been written for him. There's the outreach, and here comes the irony. The aim of life is self-development, he says. To realize one's nature perfectly, that is what each of us is here for, even though that's not the case in Dorian Gray. Until next time, be kind and certainly stay safe. Mm -hmm.